1: I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world uncovering their secrets to success. On Friday, 15th of October, we hosted our third live interview on Twitter Spaces with Sessions' favourite Dr. Jeff Frost. Having previously quizzed Jeff about Bitcoin's long term outlook and the crypto's credentials as a store of value, this time we focused on his hedge fund's stock picking strategy. Bailshire Partners operates a long-short approach, identifying long-term equity investments in the healthcare and technology sectors. I asked Jeff for his view on tech and healthcare right now and over the next five years. We discuss his progression from Buffett disciple to ardent growth investor, and we identify the consistent traits evident in each of his current portfolio constituents. Enjoy. Welcome, Jeff. It's great to be able to host you on another OptoSpaces event. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Aidan and Sophie. Thanks for having me up again today. It's fun to be here. Great stuff. So today uh, we covered Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies last time round, but I want to dig into the strategy and investment process you employ at your hedge fund at Bailshire Partners today. It's a bit of a change of gear. Firstly, just to get an understanding of the sorts of equity investments you look at within the fund, I read on your website you focus on healthcare by and large. Why those two sectors in particular?
0: Sure, that's a great question. Well, first the easy one is healthcare, right? So I'm a a physician. I actually just retired from doctoring about two weeks ago uh, to manage ValeShire full time, which is pretty fantastic. So I tend to have an edge just in the healthcare system, and I try to stay focused on investing in areas in which I at least feel like I have some sort of edge. So healthcare is one. Uh, Technology is the other. I've just always been in interested in technology and innovation and mainly because of how my mind works I tend to think in macro terms I I like to take a step back and see where huge secular growth trends are occurring. And if you can get those right uh, over the long run, you tend to do very well as an investor. So even if you're not a great stock picker, if you can tend to see where the trends are moving, uh, you know, and that can be in any, we can get into what, what those different trends can be. But if you can invest within those trends that are making the world a better place and that are changing the world actively. Uh, you'll do very well as an investor overall. So that's kind of the overview of how I look at investing.
1: Yeah, and I wonder whether you look for consistent fundamentals or any more sort of qualitative characteristics, irrespective of either sector, across any investments that you are potentially considering for the portfolio. Like, you know, are there certain characteristics or fundamentals that are true regardless of sector? within the portfolio constituents that you hold.
0: Yeah, so this is interesting. So taking a step back, what's funny, especially people who know me today, I started out Baleshire and my hedge fund as a traditional value investor. So I grew up kind of in the training of Warren Buffett and you know studying balance sheets and, and looking at cash flows and, and looking at these price-to-earnings models and, and things like that. It was a tough decade, though, to be a value investor for most people who paid attention to what went on. Um, basically growth dominated for the last decade and it, and, it, and it's kind of, uh, in a transition point right now, but I actually think it will continue to dominate. The reason why I think that is because of, um, uh, again, kind of macro factor. So what is happening to the world's money supply? Um, you know, the U S dollar is the world's reserve currency. That's basically the ruler from which we gather all of our value metrics, uh, on our companies. And so, if you're looking at traditional metrics like uh, price to earnings, price to sales, you know, looking at uh, discounted cash flow models, things like that, the problem with all of those equations is your denominator underlying all of this is a U.S. dollar that is constantly changing in valuation, and when, and by changing I mean it's basically depreciating over time. So government fiat currencies are in this race to zero, zero value over time, as as everyone kind of knows over the long run. That makes it really hard to come up with accurate valuation measurements. And so I think because of that, because we live in And that's what I call a funny money world uh, because of the central bank policies. And I'm not, uh, this isn't me trying to uh, get on their case right now. This is a different discussion. Um, But because of that, the traditional value metrics don't work. And I think that's why traditional value investing has not worked well uh, in general. And so that kind of led me to what does work well. And uh, w- when you live in a world where credit is widely abundant and interest rates are zero or near zero, or you know, as you guys know in Europe, some of the interest rates are negative, um, you're, you're getting paid to borrow money in, in essence, um, then I would say that the people who are best at capital allocation, so CEOs of companies who are master capital allocators who can access free, cheap credit, uh, and and use that to grow their company. Those are the kind of companies that are going to perform well, and they will continue to perform well uh, in into the future. And so, do I look at those kind of metrics for my companies? Yes. So so I start with my major secular trends, as I was talking about. And then within uh, each trend that I see, I pick companies that I think are basically taking advantage of capital allocation decisions uh, and are growing really quickly and are kind of changing the world for the better. So we can dig deeper into any of that kind of stuff. But that's that's the general overview of how I make my individual
1: investments into equities. Site references, evidence-based research as a key tenant of your investment process. So that's one of the things that goes into how you, I suppose, identify those stocks that you're alluding to there. But in practice, what does that look like?
0: Sure. So, um, well, okay, so I'll just go ahead and give you guys the secret sauce. So so since I switched from value to uh, a more macro growth mindset uh, several years ago, um, the way I look at companies, it actually will make value investors roll over in their grave. It's, you know, one thing real quick, a quick side note, value investors, traditional value investors, many of whom are friends of mine, I used to speak at these conferences a lot, they cannot stand growth companies and they cannot stand the success of growth companies. It drives them nuts because growth companies Ah, uh, with their horrid-looking balance sheets and their massive revenue growth, but their you know minimal cash flows and and negative price-to-earnings and things like that, especially in the early days, it just drives value investors nuts. But so it drove me nuts too, and I and I spent you know the mid 2015, 2020 uh, into that time period watching companies for the last 20 years like companies like amazon like netflix companies that on on when you look at their uh numbers they're not supposed to do well uh and so it kind of drives you nuts so that's the out to all of this so i get all that i I totally do but but growth companies just operate on kind of a different trajectory so the things that i use i came up with an acronym called films and I've, i've tweeted this out before but what films is to me i look for companies that are founder led that's the f I is for innovative, L is long-term uh, value creators, M is master capital allocators, and S is stakeholder-friendly. Uh, stakeholder and if I can find companies uh, in this age that are in a secular growth trend that fit that film's criteria, those, have at least for me and, and the way I pick these things, many of which this is subjective, I understand, um, but they tend to significantly outperform uh, the underlying S&P and, and, and traditional valuation metrics.
1: Yeah, interesting. I mean, from what you're saying there about the secular growth trends, it seems a top-down strategy, at least in the first instance. I mean, would would be fair you considering sort of the theme or the trend before you consider a particular industry and ultimately the stock?
0: Absolutely. So I, I would absolutely uh, consider myself a top-down investor.
1: Great. So again, as part of your process, um, you reference a full-cycle macroeconomic investment strategy. So. I mean, firstly, would you consider the approach unconstrained, i.e. you're not restricted by factor, size, or even geography, for example?
0: Yes. In fact, that's why I chose to become a hedge fund manager like I am, where I basically have... I'm completely unconstrained across jurisdictions and across different sectors uh that's the way my mind kind of works i want to be able to have the freedom to go wherever i think i can generate alpha so i don't want to be just in the us or just in you know large caps or just in the bond market or whatever um i i tell, and I tell my investors this we literally will go anywhere it could be these bonds currencies commodities uh you name it it could be you know uh, we could be investing in malaysian small caps if we want it just it just doesn't matter it's wherever i think that the best um the best alpha is going to be generated for my clients um, and then just just to kind of piggyback on to what you were saying earlier, my two points of view. So top down. So, yes, I look at big secular growth trends and try to ride those for as long as possible. And then within that, though, there are business cycles. So this is sort of the secret sauce that it took me a long time to figure out. There are some hedge fund managers historically that literally uh, they, they just have astonished me because with their gains and, and uh, primarily I'm talking about Ray Dalio and even more so Stan Drunkenmiller. These guys seem to, in their in the old days at least, they just never seem to lose. They always seem to be one step ahead of the markets. And I spent years and years and years trying to figure out how they did that. And, and I think they did is they employed a, a method where they looked at what underlying economic metrics were doing within each country. Um, and obviously I'm U.S. based, so I'll focus on the U.S. here. So basically what the economy is doing, if it's growing actively or shrinking actively, and what inflation is doing, if it's accelerating or decelerating. When you pair those factors together, they have distinct effects on overlying asset classes. And it starts with what our treasury rates and currencies doing. And then it has effects on different subsectors of like the S&P 500. So what do energy stocks do? If inflation is accelerating, what does that mean for energy and commodities? Well, it means they're usually going to rise. Commodities usually rise with rising inflation. Uh, What things uh, also do well? Financials tend to do well. When uh, when interest rates are increasing at the long end of the of the spectrum, that tends to be good for financials. So then you, you tend to want to be long financials at that point. What does poorly when in these kind of circumstances? Gold tends to do poorly. And so you can you can kind of create this big puzzle uh, throughout your portfolio, and I'll shift in and out. So even though I'm a very long-term investor for these huge secular growth trends, I shift our strategies from uh, usually from quarter to quarter, sometimes month to month,
1: based on what these underlying metrics are doing. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you, I think you've sort of half answered my next question, but you talk about investment cycles there, and you also about secular growth trends so i was just wondering how you sort of marry the two but is it essentially that you're investing over the long term in companies that give you exposure to secular growth trends but it's just eating and the size of that exposure that shifts with the investment cycle
0: Uh, Yeah, that's a great way to think. So for instance, in my hedge fund, I I call myself a, a long, short healthcare and technology centered fund manager. I'm a big fan of healthcare. But right now, because of how the market is and these underlying metrics that I was describing, I think healthcare is a terrible place to be in. So I'm literally not long anything in healthcare right now. I would actually short some healthcare, but I'm just not interested in doing that. There's no obvious shorts for me at the moment. I want to be long for the long term uh, in healthcare, in technology and in things like Bitcoin that I think are very long term secular bull markets. Um, but there are seasons where all of these do poorly, including mine. So I'm a, as most people know here in the audience, I'm an absolute Bitcoin fanatic um, and, I, and I love what it's doing for the world, but there are seasons where it will underperform. And so when I think those seasons are upon us, Uh, I will take uh, defensive measures to protect uh, my core Bitcoin holdings. And I'll do the same for the technology and those films stocks that I was talking about. I'll do things to protect uh, any downside uh, losses in those areas.
1: Yeah, great. And if we just dig in quickly to that films acronym, uh, the L for for long term, I think it was. um, We've discussed it, secular growth trends do play out over the long term. But what is long term? Are we talking sort of multi-decade time horizons here?
0: Yeah, I, I consider long term basically to be five years and over, so five years to uh, multiple decades, any, anywhere in there. And those are those are honestly pretty easy to see if you're honest with yourself and you just take a step back. Um, you know, one one obvious one is is sort of the shift to electric vehicles, right? I mean, everybody mocked uh, ten years ago, and now it's just undeniable uh, that things are shifting that way. Even the the old, stodgy, traditional car makers here in the U.S. they all have massive uh, plans for uh, electric vehicles going forward. And so, so those kind of trends are things that you can just sort of take a step back look at and then and then you can spend time diving down into it and finding the best companies within those trends Um, so but what's interesting is even in those big trends like i said they still are cyclical so they'll have their periods where they do really well and then they'll have periods of underperformance so what i try to do as a fund manager is determine when those periods are coming and then hedge against the downside i want to ride the upside as long as possible hedge against those uh, downside quarters and, and years when they happen yeah, and you
1: mentioned the downside there. How are you protecting against the downside? Firstly, in terms of, sort of how you construct your portfolio and size positions as well.
0: Sure. So good question. So first of all, right now, I will tell you based on the same metrics I just described, I am wildly bullish uh, in this current month and this quarter. So I've been, I've been tweeting about this actually for a couple months now that this coming quarter, this fourth quarter of 2021 is going to be a very risk on quarter. Uh, so very bullish for aggressive volatile assets, uh, Bitcoin being the best, I think. And then other things like energy stocks, financials, uh, small cap U.S. stocks will do well. I'm, I'm mainly, again, I'm primarily U.S.-based here. So these are the kind of sectors that I'm, I'm looking at and I'm most constructive on. I'm actually not short anything in my hedge fund. I'm 100% long, uh, which for me is, um, is not super unusual, but I'm usually short something and I'm usually hedging something. But right now I'm so optimistic I'm not short anything. But say things switch, right? So say we get into next year and the underlying uh, market fundamentals change. I don't like the direction that inflation is trending. I don't like what the GDP is doing, say in the U.S., Then what I'll do is I'll take the very same um, positions that I have and I'll throw on uh, hedges. And so different hedges I use, uh, I'll throw out Bitcoin, for example, because it's near and dear to my heart. So I want to protect the core Bitcoin allocation I have in my portfolio, basically at all costs. So a lot of the companies that I like currently that I'm very long right now are Bitcoin miners. And then even companies like Michael Saylor's MicroStrategy. I'm very long that right now. I'm a huge fan. Um, but if, if I think that we're coming up to a uh, scary time where we need to be um, very defensive, I'll turn right around and short those same, those same entities. So I'll stay long my Bitcoin, but I'll put shorts on in Bitcoin miners, in MicroStrategy, or I'll buy puts. Those are just as effective. You can tend to get a little more bang for your buck if you buy puts um, and you're putting kind of less capital at risk uh, in doing that. So those are different strategies that I employ. Uh, but currently, I'm not hedging
1: anything in my phone. Uh, and and just to sort of double confirm on those uh, short bets, you know are they simply there to hedge against sort of bullish or longer or or sorry long positions rather than to deliver outperformance, if you see what I mean?
0: I actually try to strive for outperformance. So on the one hand, i I try to basically hedge against and kind of keep a neutral approach on on Bitcoin itself. Um, but for my other positions, I will actually aggressively short. So a good example of that was back in um, March of 2020, when COVID first struck and markets tanked. Not only did I hedge, I flat out sold all of our long positions back in uh, February and early March of 2020. And we were basically sitting in a mix of cash and gold and some U.S. treasuries. And even gold and treasuries didn't do well in the short term. They, they ended up recovering quickly. But in um, uh, those kind of real deflationary risk-off environments, I'll get extremely, extremely conservative and even sell all of my longs that I'm very constructive on um, in order to protect our clients' downside. And then what I usually do, though, is when I see the winds changing again and and things turning positive again, I'll just open up positions in all of the other equities and other positions that I had been in previously and try to
1: ride the next wave higher. Yeah, great. Okay, well, this undermines the current markets then. I mean, the short-term outlook for tech could look a little bearish. I suppose we had the 10-year treasury note yield hitting a high last week, but after yields dropped off the back of recent inflation data. I mean, what's your outlook for tech over the medium term if we, if we kind of look past this short term?
0: Yeah, tech is funny. Right now, I'm actually mostly bullish tech, but with the caveat that it tends to not do well if interest rates are rising aggressively. It actually is a good sign for technology stocks. And this gets mixed up in the public a lot. I hear this on like CNBC and and Bloomberg a lot where they mix this up, um, where they say rising interest rates are bad for tech. That's not actually totally true. It's bad for tech if they're quickly rising. Uh, But if it's kind of a slow grind higher in interest rates, that actually shows that market participants, at least the bond market, is constructive on the future. Uh, and so they're thinking that the, the, that the GDP growth is going to be uh, positive and accelerating over the longer run. And that's generally good for tech and innovation. So that's the little caveat I have with that. So right now, we've been seeing kind of choppy moves in tech. That's expected. I think as interest rates kind of rise and then maybe plateau a bit, I think tech will take off from there. So very short term, I'm uh, uh, kind of equivocal on tech. A little bit longer term, maybe getting a couple months out, I'm more constructive on tech uh, until the underlying metrics change. So for my VailShire clients, I have um, all of them in in some sort of tech position right now. It's not as big as it normally is, but I still am long tech.
1: Yeah, great. Well, if we look inside tech, then what themes or industries or even sub-industries are you particularly bullish on uh, looking forward?
0: Yeah, it's kind of the same old, same old. I think I think the FANG stocks and, and that those components will continue to do well. You know, software continues to eat the world. Cloud computing continues to do very well. I have specific tickers that I like. I know we're not supposed to give individual investment advice on here. So um, themes that I'm looking at, I, I still like things like uh, e-commerce. Um, I'm actually not in Amazon anymore because it doesn't meet my films criteria once uh, Bezos moved on from CEO. Uh, but there are other similar companies like Amazon and other parts of the world uh, doing similar things for clients. I like uh, equities that have some kind of Bitcoin strategy. Um, and not to talk too much about Bitcoin, because I know that's not our focus today. But I think if you don't have some sort of Bitcoin strategy as a uh, as an S&P 500 company, you are going to become a loser within the next five to 10 years. And so you have to have some sort of strategy, even if it's just at a minimum putting Bitcoin on your balance sheet as a reserve asset. Um, But I think uh, so companies that are pro Bitcoin and deploying those sorts of strategies today, I look at those companies as good investments. um, And I have a handful of those in my portfolio. And then another industry I like, I like AI artificial intelligence and i think that's going to start becoming more commonplace and we're going to seeing that deployed across lots of different sectors and so companies that are in that space
1: i think should do well as well yeah great i just want to return to that film's criteria because i think there's a few interesting points there i mean the i innovative i think it was what what does that actually mean in in real terms does that company uh, need to be disrupting incumbents or within a traditional market or can they just be doing something slightly different to existing players what what does that mean in real terms
0: Sure. So obviously, this is the funny one. It's very subjective, right? I mean, what does innovative really mean to somebody? And you can uh, interview five or 10 different people and they'll give you five or 10 answers. And so I look at that just from a purely subjective standpoint. Are these people really changing the way things are done? And is it is it being done for the better? And is it improving the world? And that kind of goes along with the L of my film's acronyms, so long term value creators. So is there innovation uh, creating value for its customers? Is it is it a product or a service? Uh, that is making the world a better place and are they uh, and are they profiting from it you know you got it's great to, to change the world but if you're not profiting you can actually lose money as as well and so that's the general criteria I look at and it's bit, and I totally get it it's very subjective I mean one thing I would say I'll just throw this out there this isn't an individual recommendation but I think Twitter is a very innovative social media company I think there are, there are tons of competitors and I think Twitter continues you know Jack Dorsey and his team continue to set it apart um, by doing things like I, you can't get it I think you can't get a better education uh, in financial literacy and Bitcoin and related topics than you can on Twitter. You can talk with the world's experts every day on Twitter spaces and you can tweet uh, with with people who are just literally the best in the world at what they do and they're easily accessible uh, on this platform. I think that's not true on other platforms that I was initially constructive on. I I used to be a fan of Facebook, used to be a fan of LinkedIn. Um, I don't like those companies anymore. I don't invest in those companies anymore. I don't think they're changing the world for the better. I think they're they're, uh, um, clawing value from the world and taking time away from people in a detrimental way. So those are the kind of companies that I don't think are innovative in a good way and they are not creating a long-term value. So again, not individual recommendations, but that's that's how I view uh, my investments.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, in terms of Twitter and the power it has as a platform. Um... I mean, you mentioned healthcare a, a moment ago and you mentioned that obviously you don't have any exposure to it right now. You're pretty bearish on the sector as a whole. We actually spoke to Brad Longcar a couple of weeks ago who highlighted almost bubble-level valuations in biotech specifically at the start of this year after the two record years we, that we'd seen previous. Um, I mean, you've got the iShares, IBB ETF, which are the biggest one, or certainly one of the two biggest ETFs in that space. That's flat for the year. We're down over the past month as well. So firstly, I just wondered whether you had an outlook for biotech within the wider healthcare space over the medium term, even though you're not currently exposed to it. Uh, And secondly, uh, a wider outlook for healthcare when you might be back in that sector would be interesting too. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of what is going to
0: happen in healthcare and what we're already seeing the early stages of. Uh, so things like gene editing, I think, are fantastic, and I think Brad probably talked about a lot of this. I was uh, heavily invested in those, like CRISPR technology companies. So, you know, CRISPR was one, um, uh, EDIT was another, and and similar companies that are basically, you know, using gene editing technology to change these previously untreatable diseases. Um, where you could only treat symptoms, but you couldn't actually uh, cure them. These are literally causing cures and diseases that are just terrible for people. Uh, and they're usually, you know, most people don't know about a lot of these uh, genetic diseases. Um, but they're, they are prevalent. You know, I, I see these as a doctor all the time, but, but they're, they're kind of uh, obscure view from the general public. These are life-changing treatments. They are literally world altering, family altering, life-changing, awesome treatments. So I'm a huge fan of those. I'm a huge supporter of genetic editing and that whole movement that is in its early days, uh, early phases where like, in you know, first inning of a nine inning uh, game for those things. They're going to get better and better and be able to do more and more things, uh, and treat basically individualized medicine is where I see things going. Instead of doctors giving like blanket treatments of uh, pharmaceuticals that help, you know, 75% of the population, but actually don't help or harm the other 25%, we're going to see less and less of that. And the reason why we have seen that to date is because the computing power just hasn't been there and we haven't had artificial intelligence that has benefited humans. So we're going to be able to get down, we're going to be able to look at each person's genome, look at, uh, you know, where the strengths and weaknesses are. We're going to be able to create treatments that are tailored specifically to each individual. And this will be able to be done in a cost-effective manner going forward um, using these AI strategies where you don't have to try 1,000, you know, like Thomas Edison, what did he try? 10,000 different filaments and he finally found the right one on 10,001 or something like that. That's similar to how the pharmaceutical industry and how medicine works currently. And that's uh, rapidly shifting because of technology and because of advances in technology, prices are dropping you can use computer models now that can actually determine, predetermine the shapes of proteins based on the amino acids uh, you're using in your concoction. And you can come up with tailored solutions for individuals. So I'm, I'm hugely positive on this for the coming 10 years. Healthcare is the stodgiest of sectors. I, I, it's a very frustrating sector. It's, it's overly expensive and underly efficient. Very frustrating for physicians and other healthcare providers to work in this space right now. Change is coming and that's a fantastic thing. So I think what we'll see in the future is increase price transparency, I think we'll move to more of a free market healthcare system and kind of get it away from the insurers and the administrator. Middle. I think patient-physician uh, relationships will improve. And I think that diagnoses and treatment options, those kind of companies that are in that space, uh, they will be wildly successful. So I kind of think we're on, as far as like the gene editing companies that Brad talks about, and I, and I mentioned uh, earlier, we're on sort of the backside of that innovation cycle, right? So they got all hyped up, the hype cycle, they peaked they're on the decline right now, but then what they're going to do is at some point they're going to find a bottom. Everyone's going to despair and say they're terrible investments, and that's going to be the time to get back into those for the very long term. Uh, I think they're going to enjoy uh, decades of success going forward. I think the traditional pharmaceutical industry is going to uh, be hurting as things change to a more technology-centered uh, model and, um, and more of an individualized medicine model as well. So those are the kind of companies I look at. That's a real broad uh, stroke. I think once my underlying metrics change and they and they turn positive for healthcare I'll turn my attention back onto those spaces um you know just one other quick thing that I like um, robotics, robotics and medicine. So Intuitive Surgical has been just a wildly successful company to invest in. You can do minimally invasive surgeries through there. People can go out and have a, a what used to be a major, a major surgery that would keep them hospitalized for several weeks. They can now go in and have same-day surgeries and have things removed. Stuff I used to do, I used to be an interventional radiologist, so I would do uh, image-guided minimally invasive surgeries. I would have patients come in who had a tumor on their kidney and I would just make a tiny little uh, you know, half centimeter incision, stick a probe into it, and I would either burn or freeze the tumor, the cancer, and they would be cancer free. They would leave uh, five hours later with minimal pain, and they wouldn't have cancer anymore. And so these are the kind of treatments that are coming down the pike, it's going to uh, significantly improve the quality of life for patients and, uh, and longevity as well. And so any company like that, that I think is changing the world for the better and and improving quality of life, those are the kind of companies I'm interested in investing in, uh, in Belshire and in my hedge fund.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned uh, quite a few different themes there, AI, robotics, healthcare, innovation in, in, in general. I wondered whether you actively or practically try and identify an intersection of multiple themes and whether that actually could lead to exponentially larger returns or outperformance over the long term. Is that is is that a valid strategy, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think that's great you, you thought of that because that's how I think. So that's how my macro mind works. And I don't know if it's part of just, it's part of who I am. And part of my training as a radiologist as well, where I I see many different unrelated components and then piece it all together in my head and figure out themes. So I'll look at like a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, pelvis, and look at, oh, this is a little quirky and that's funny and that looks off. And then come up with a diagnosis. Oh, I think this patient has, you know, hepatitis or acute cholecystitis or something like that. Um, And so I do the same thing as an investor, too. I look at where are these trends going? I see this trend, you know, trends in energy. And I see that banks are struggling. And I see that Bitcoin is coming around. Uh, and, and all of the, the uh, features that that has to offer as a decentralized, secure uh, monetary network. And I think, you know, at some point, I think it's inevitable that energy and finance merge because of Bitcoin, and that actually becomes one big triad uh, going forward. So I think the energy and finance sectors merge under Bitcoin. Um, most people think I'm insane for thinking that, but I think by 2025, 2030, it will be super obvious. I think big companies like BP and ExxonMobil and Saudi Aramco they'll actually be converting their excess energy, their, you know, their flared natural gas and other waste energy they're going to put Bitcoin miners on there and they're going to start profiting. They're going to start making uh, Bitcoin with their excess energy so they don't waste it anymore. I think utilities will, will get sucked into that as well. You know, they, they, they're they constantly, they're, they're in the business of managing the electrical grid for communities. Um, there are times where they have too much energy with nobody to use it. If it's a really windy night and they have tons of wind power and it's two in the morning, nobody needs electricity at that point. So what are they going to do? They're going to put Bitcoin miners onto their grid and they're going to start mining Bitcoin and they're going to store that energy as a monetary battery. Uh, for the future. And they're going to become uh, much more profitable, much more efficient. It's going to drive down energy costs. Um, that's the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Uh, same same with healthcare. Like I said, it's a stodgy system. This traditional healthcare system is very frustrating and inefficient. Um, I think, uh, again, I, I'm trying not to bring it back to Bitcoin, but I, I see so much of the world through my Bitcoin lens now. I think it's going to introduce um, transparent pricing and free market dynamics to healthcare. We've been looking for, you know, I'm 47, as, as as long as I can remember, for 40 years, they've been talking about a political solution to rising healthcare costs and healthcare inefficiencies. It will never happen. We'll never get a political solution that will make it better. It always makes it worse. Uh, they always put more people in the middle. There's always more programs that I think make it worse. What it needs is free market that needs technology to, to be introduced into it. And that will cause just a massive quick improvement in healthcare for everybody. And I think it will make the whole human population
1: healthier and happier as a result. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Um, well, I'll use this chunk. Then I've got a couple more questions that I want to ask Jeff, but obviously if anyone wants to add their own question, just request to be a speaker and we'll let you in before we end the call. Uh, another one from me then, I mean, all of this, I guess, has culminated in some quite strong performance for the hedge fund. I mean, you've generated, I think, 16082 net returns since inception and 117.37% uh, over the past 12 months. So I think outperformance is one thing, doing that over one year, for example. Maybe there's a few funds out there that could achieve that. But what, what do you think is the key to consistent outperformance, in your opinion, Jeff?
0: Well, first of all, it all changed for me. I was, i was just to be totally honest with everyone, I was a mediocre hedge fund manager up until about 2018, 2019. And that's where it just, I'm very competitive also. I, I don't like to lose. I'm thankfully kind of humble. So I, I realize when I make mistakes, I try to learn from them. And I just spent a lot of time doing a lot of soul searching, trying to figure out what was wrong with my methodology. And so that's when I switched over from as I'm earlier. I used to be kind of just a value-based uh, investor focused on the healthcare system. I'm like, this doesn't work. This honestly, this is disappointing. I feel bad for my own investors. Like, I wouldn't want to invest with me. And so I did this huge overhaul with how I do things. And I feel like I, I run it now more like how Stan Drunkenmiller, if you guys know him, how how he kind of ran his fund. He was pretty private about his methods. And I don't, I don't like to give all of my secret sauce away, but my main changes that I made were uh, were twofold. One was having this full cycle uh, investment approach where I saw the cyclicality in, in all business cycles and across all different countries um, and looking at underlying data to make more of a quantitative uh, approach to my investment decisions. So instead of using my gut and hunches to invest in companies that I thought were great. I really used my kind of macro view, this top-down approach, and then married that with this underlying uh, full-cycle systematic approach. And when I did that, it just everything clicked. You can see on my results, like basically 2019 into 2020, I just suddenly started generating just massive alpha, and and I now have a system that I'm very confident in. Uh, like even a month ago on Twitter, people were you know uh, calling me out and making fun of me for being super optimistic. I was saying I'm wildly bullish about this fourth quarter, and they're like, you're wrong. We're hedging, you know, major hedge funds. You could see that they were hedging for a major equities drop uh, this month and uh, this quarter. And um, and I was taking the wrong side of that bet and, and I'm a contrarian, I'm going to lose. I'm like, I'm just, I have this just sort of quiet confidence now that what I'm doing uh, is right because it's based on what the underlying data is doing. And so when I say that it's a risk-on environment, I mean, I'm fully on board with that strategy. And I'm like I said, I'm not shorting anything currently. And that's how you get to this these points of conviction. And that's how we get to these kind of market-beating returns. You know, when you can outperform the S&P 500 by 100% over a year, um, that's pretty solid. And that's really life-changing for lots of my investors. They were used to getting the typical, you know, 8 to 10% returns in a 60-40 portfolio in their IRAs or in their 401ks. They're now seeing their 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 you know their net worth double in a year, uh, and and I obviously I can't I can't say any of that is true going forward. You know, if, uh, we have to be very careful. Uh, past performance is not indicative of future returns. But I'm very confident in my methods and in my strategy um, going forward, and I'm I'm really looking
1: forward to this to to kind of uh, employing this over the coming decade. Yeah, and finally from me then, how systematic do you need to ensure that process is to mitigate any sort of emotions overtaking? your decision-making. I imagine that's sort of fundamental to achieving these consistent returns.
0: Yeah, the best thing that ever happened to me, and this is how I counsel other kind of newbie investors or people who have just had been frustrated with their investment returns over the last years and decades is you can't invest with your emotions. Whenever you invest with your emotions, you're going to lose. And I have even my own clients, so I have to counsel this, where, where we talk about this, when the market crashes, like like a great example is back in April, May, when when China uh, banned Bitcoin miners and the price dropped from 60 plus thousand down to sub 30,000, over a 50% drop. I, I was just telling my clients, like, you have to just not let fear rule you. If you cash out right now, if you liquidate your account, you're going to be liquidating at the bottom. Whenever you invest out of fear, when you trade out of fear, um, you're almost always making a losing long-term investment. And if you're also if you're buying out of greed, you're FOMOing in because you see everybody else is buying in. You're almost always making a poor long-term decision. And so you got to get your emotions out of it. And that's what having a more quantitative, systematic approach does for me. I know that if I'm feeling uh, nervous or scared, but my system is telling me to buy. Almost always, literally ninety-five percent of the time, those are my greatest trades. Uh, another a great example of this, I was I tweeted all this live too, so you can go back and check. But back in June, when Bitcoin dropped again below twenty-nine thousand, I'm like, my system is telling me to buy. I see all these people on Twitter telling me Bitcoin's going to twenty thousand, fifteen thousand. It's going, you know, Peter Schiff says it's going to zero. Guess what? I'm buying because my system says it's time to buy. It feels terrible. I feel like I'm going to throw up. It's hard to do. I know my investors are freaking out and they're and they're kind of frustrated right now. But you know what? That turned out to be one of the best investments and it will probably be one of the greatest investments that that I've made in my fund uh, over the long run. And so right to your point, Hayden, if you can find a system that works and that removes your emotions and actually generally goes contrary to your emotions, uh, that is going to be generally
1: very successful over the long run. Yeah, 100% agree. And a a nice message to end on, I think. Um, And that just leaves me to say thank you very much, Jeff, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Fantastic insights. As usual, I thank you very much for everyone that's joined. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off, if you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top 7 stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends, and in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time, co fruition.